Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, guys, this was a really exciting week. I did a podcast with Karen De La Carriere uh, about Scientology's legal woes and uh, sort of strategies and things that go on behind the scenes they might not know about, so I hope you'll check that out. Always fun talking to Karen, and so far the feedback on the podcast has been pretty good. And um, we have some really, really interesting questions, but I wanted to get to share a couple things with you. First off, it looks like I will be able to continue the uh, Great Courses Plus uh, sponsorship on my channel, and that is very exciting to me because they are my first and only sponsor so far, but it's been really great and a product that I really, really believe in. So really makes me happy to put those commercials up on my podcasts. And um, the other thing that happened this week that, that I, I thought I would just kind of tell you, originate to you guys is, um, you know, I talk a lot about this recovery process I've referred to, you know, these various steps or stages you go through and the onion layers that come off and all that. Um, but something occurred to me this week that has never happened before, at least not as, it hasn't happened since I was a kid. And... Um, and it was really special and really kind of cool for me. And it might seem probably pretty stupid or silly, but it, but it's for me it was a big deal. Um, I found myself chilling, relaxing. You know, it's summer. It's time sometimes to just go outside and hang out, chill. You know, my wife and I go take a walk when uh, she gets home from work. I, of course, work from home here. Um, and that's all cool. But I found myself, uh, you know, I've always had a problem <laughs> with being able to just chill and not be thinking constantly about what else I should be doing, what other work I should be working on, um, you know, what's my next podcast going to be, what's my next video going to be, what about this particular problem I'm, I'm trying to solve or figure out. Always stressing about something. Always worried about something. Always having my attention somewhere else. And, um, and I found myself this week, for the first time in decades, not having that happen. Um, you know, all that kind of really moved away and just being able to be in the moment and just be kind of chill. And this is not like a, an ability gained, I can do this all the time now or something, some Scientology nonsense. I'm just saying that it happened and I was like, oh my God, what, where'd, where'd all, the, where'd all the, the franticness go, you know? So, um, you know, it's been a while. It's been a long time. I've been working on this stuff proactively. So I think this is a good, good thing and I thought I would share that with you guys. So, now let's get on with your questions because there are some really interesting ones this week. Christoph, as exploration of past lives is central to the Scientology belief, do people usually report having inhabited bodies that share a gender with the body they inhabit in their current life? I know from critical Q&A number 116 that Thetans do not have a gender, so past lives should average at a 50-50 male to female ratio. Is the reality of past life reports even close to that assumption? What happens to people who report past lives as the wrong gender, considering Scientology, isn't really supportive of LGBT, and this might read as a related phenomenon? Is being closely in touch with your past lives, slash recalling them vividly, a good thing to happen to you as a Thetan? How would an auditor react if you, a man, described your loving relationship to a man in a past life you lived as a woman? Would that raise any red flags? 
Or what would happen if you're a woman and after careful reflection on past lives lived as a man, you tell your auditor how being in a relationship with a woman always seemed like the most appealing thing to you, to your Thetan self, and you would consider trying it with your current female body. Okay, Kristoff, about five for one here, but uh, let's tackle this. First off, uh, to answer your question in a broad overview sort of thing, no one cares. Uh, what happens in session stays in session. It's, nobody's at all concerned about the things that you tell your auditor in an auditing session or what sort of things you might be remembering or re-experiencing from a past life. That was then, this is now. That was you then, this is you now. The whole point of auditing according to Scientology theory, is that you are doing it to improve yourself by looking back at past stresses and traumas and experiences that you've had and wrongdoings that you've committed in an effort to improve yourself now. And, you know, there is uh, that, that theoretically, that's not really a bad thing, right? The whole thing about past lives is it gets a little bit weird. Um, you know, but looking to your past, and your actions in the past and how they might have influenced your actions now, your beliefs and ideas now, what were the causative agents in your past that, um, that were reacting on you that made you do what you did. I mean, those are good things to look at because you can sort of sort out responsibility issues and trauma issues and things like that. And in fact, that is, from a clinical psychology point of view, that is the good thing about, like, say, Dianetics, right? Is It's not going back and reliving an incident over and over again. That has very limited therapeutic technique by study and survey in, in the world of psychology. But the idea of going back in the past and sorting out causative agents, that's a big deal. That's a, that's a good thing to do. So getting back to your questioning now on gender, if what is causing you now to act in a, let's say, a pro-LGBT way, which is in Scientology not really cool, they're not really down with homosexuality or bisexuality or any pansexuality, any of that. It's just you're straight and that's how it is, right? Well, if you're having issues with this, thoughts about it, even actions that you're taking as a result of that, and in Scientology, you go into an auditing session and you address past lives where you were, you know, a female and you're a male now and you were doing bad things, let's say. That's the kind of stuff Scientology would, would say is wrong with you, right? Is you were a female doing bad female things or you were a male doing bad, you know, things to other uh, males or females or whatever. That You could really sort out the logic almost any way you wanted to. But... The point is that if you were to sort that stuff out in your auditing session, what Scientology's attitude about that would be is not to blame you for things you come up in session in past lives, but um, to make that be the reason why you now don't have to have or shouldn't have those feelings or ideas or attitudes or whatever about that. That's the expectation that Scientology auditing is supposed to um, supposed to bring, right? That kind of change is what it's supposed to bring. It's supposed to make you more straight, more normal, right? Less aberrated, less perverted, less, you know, whatever. So, um, and certainly less, you know, uh, homosexual, LGBTQ, whatever. 
So, um, so that's kind of the idea. Now, all of that I'm talking about here within. The, I'm talking about it from the from the viewpoint of being in the bubble world. I'm not saying that all of this is is really a sensible way to approach. You know, this isn't this isn't. Uh, you know, Chris Shelton's uh, endorsement of Scientology trying to audit the gay away, okay? That's not, that's not what I'm talking about here, but, and I, I, I think you guys probably know that, but I just want to throw that out there. Uh, but this is what Scientology thinks you need to do in order to audit the gay away. So it would almost be, you know, if you came in and you wanted to cure your homosexuality or audit the gay away, this would be the kind of thing you would expect to be running, in the auditing sessions is past lives of, of other genders, right? Uh, the other thing about this, of course, is that I talked to uh, different people over the years, back when I was uh, in Santa Barbara and in the Sea Org, um, who talked about running things in a different gender, in a different kind of body than the one they have. Alien bodies, female, male, I mean, you know, human, humanoid. Uh, amoeba. I mean, there's all kinds of things you look at and, and, and sort of imagine you're doing in your past lives in the auditing. So, uh, so however you think, see, this would be really interesting. There's no, you asked about um, statistically, you know, does it come out at 50-50? Nobody is taking any statistical information about how many people are, re are recalling how many past lives and which gender they were in those past lives. No one in Scientology cares. So I could, I could not even begin to answer that question specifically for you. Um, but I can say that Scientologists have talked about, and I even talked about one time, running something in a past life in a different body or a different gender and being like, oh, that was squishy and weird. You know, or however, I, you know, I thought about it and other people, how, when they told me about their experiences, how they thought about it, and how odd it was for them and noteworthy of, of being odd and different, right, and peculiar for them. So, uh, so there's no, so again, all that just sort of reinforces my point that there's not really a lot of judgment on that particular thing. Where Scientology judgment comes in is in your current life and what you're doing now, in the here and now. Um, okay, now let's see here. As far as this last question, would it, what would happen if you're a woman and you say, hey, you know, I recall having relationships with women in the past um, as a man, and I think I'd like to have a relationship with a woman now. Okay, now if you said that, you would, of course, end up in front of a Scientology ethics officer or a C or MAA, Master at Arms, same thing. And they would, if they were sensible... <laughs> uh, you know, like, the, like what I would probably have done, of course that means it's sensible, I know, I know. What I probably would have done if I was an ethics person for somebody like that is I would have probably started with, okay, I totally get what you're talking about here, interesting. Why don't you list out for me the qualities that you're looking for in a romantic partner or life partner or marital partner Male or female, gender, not, not really gender specific. Just write down what are the qualities you're looking for, right? And, of course, the person would then write those things down. I'd say, okay, now, taking the gender specificity, you know, specificity, whatever, however you say that, out of this, what are these things? What are these qualities? Loving, admiring, you know, faithful, et cetera, et cetera, right? These are not gender specific ideas. 
and I'd say, okay, now are these the key things you're actually looking for? And odds are, I could, I could either, the person would say yes, or I could get the person to say yes, and look at it from that perspective, or frame it that way, and then go, okay, well, it's, clearly you're not, you're lacking these things now. So let's figure out how to get these for you without you becoming a sexual pervert, <laughs> right? It's pretty much how I would talk about it in Scientology because I'd be talking using the data from Science of Survival, L. Ron Hubbard's second book of Dianetics, right? Which talks about how, uh, well, Dianetics talks about and Science of Survival talk about how any kind of LGBT activity is completely is a total sexual perversion. And, uh, and they, they, they interpret it in Scientology that it's a perversion because bodies are made to have sex with each, you know, male to female, and that is how you propagate the race, and homosexuals don't reproduce, and I, I you know, I, I'm not telling you these things make sense, I'm telling you what they think, okay? And what I used to think, because I used to think that. So, uh, anyway, there you go. I hope th that gives you something uh, for your uh, questions. Caitlin G. We know that high intelligence is not inversely related to participation in cults. In fact, you mentioned in at least one video that high intelligence could make someone more prone to joining for several reasons, which make a lot of sense. What about levels and types of post-secondary education? One would think that having advanced education would make someone less prone to joining a cult. But the number of people I know with post-secondary education who also participate in MLM, multi-level marketing schemes, like Young Living, Duterra, Yonique, Airborne, etc., and demonstrate some cult-like behaviors is kind of alarming. Especially those who are in fields similar to mine where we have graduate-level training and research methods. For reference, I have a master's degree in speech-language pathology. In your podcast with Clint Haycock, you cited a study which found that fundamentalist evangelical Christians tended to have a lower level of post-secondary education than the general population. Did you find this to be the case in Scientology? What about other cults that you've researched? Okay, great question, Caitlin. Thank you. Statistically speaking, according to the studies and research that I have done, a uh, the, the percentage of people who have any post-secondary education, in other words, graduate studies, et cetera, like you described, are statistically greater, there's a statistically greater percentage chance that they will avoid a destructive cult situation or um, situations where thought manipulation or thought control is being done. But it is a slight percentage higher. Like, it might be college-educated. If I remember the numbers right, and, and this is just... You know, I can't even quote the study here, right? But what I recall is a, a series of bar graphs and, um, you know, no education being uh, a fairly high amount and high school education being a lower amount and then uh, college, you know, kind of similar, maybe a little bit higher than, um, than high school. And then postgraduate being like, you know, if, if, if college was 32%, then postgrad was like 34, 36% or something. It was not a... It's not a huge difference, but enough to be, you know, significant and noteworthy. Um, and I think the reason for this is you mentioned having um, education and research methods. I think that specifically would help quite a few uh, in seeing through, you know, pseudoscientific claims. But, you know, we're still only talking about, you know, on a broad shoot here, about one out of three post, you know, secondary graduate, uh, these students, um, 
stay, you know, staying uh, or staying clear. One out of three of these people staying clear of a of a cultish situation, uh, which speaks volumes to the fact and proves kind of proves the point I, I was have always been making that education or intelligence, um, no uh, proof against stupid ideas <laughs> at all. And the reason why, and, I'll, and I've talked about this in, in different videos, in fact, I've done whole public speaking lectures about this, uh, but the underlying reason really comes down to the simplicity that we are emotionally driven creatures. We are animals, we have emotion. That emotion is what drives our thinking process and drives our decision making. Uh, we talk about biases, we talk about logical fallacies. These are all symptomatic or um, different ways of looking at how those emotions can fetter our better self, our better senses, our common sense, you know, and can really get in our way. When you want something, you know, uh, when you don't want something, these two, these are emotional things you want, right? The wanting thing is, a, is an emotional uh, driver. Uh, you know, figuring something out intellectually as to, you know, what you should or shouldn't do, you can do that objectively. Best way to do that is actually figure it out for somebody else that, you, that is not you. And then if you figure it out for them, then apply it back to you, right? Because then a lot of your own self-biases won't get in the way of your, of your objective thinking, right? But even then, how you feel about the person you're doing the work for, it's going to get in the way, right? There's so many biases. There's so many things that get in the way. And uh, if you were raised in a religious up upbringing, um, you know, how your childhood was, your stress levels, um, how your, you know, I mean, there's so many levels to determining human behavior that it's, it's foolhardy for me or anybody to take it to a single source or a single cause and go, this is the thing that caused this person to uh, not be able to see that they were getting involved in a destructive cult, right? Like intelligence or education level. Neither of those things are proof at all against falling for the emotional appeal of something or someone saying that they're going to help you or help you deal with, uh, help you help yourself, right? To deal with some problem you're having or some loss you're experiencing or some trauma or stress you've experienced. It, you know, you, you want help. <laughs> and when somebody comes along offering it that sounds somewhat credible, depending on your stress levels and all of that, you know, you're going to take it. Uh, and that's, that's how the door gets opened. So, uh, and you can, and, and who, you know, how are we going to avoid that? Okay, stop being stressed. Stop being worried. Stop having problems. In other words, stop being human. It doesn't work at all. So the only remedy is critical thinking every instant of the day. Every major decision you got to make, you wait, you chill, you give yourself time to run the emotional curve, so to speak, right, the, or roller coaster uh, of the ups and downs of your emotional involvement with the decision. Because no matter how you feel right now, I guarantee you that if you give it two or three days, you're going to feel different about it. Right, and then you might swing back around again, but you're gonna have you're gonna have ups and downs on any major decision in your life. You owe it to yourself to give yourself the time to experience that decision from all those different vantage points that the different emotions are giving you, so that you can come to a more rational and objective decision about things. So, 
Anyway, I didn't mean to go on a whole roll there about all that. I was just answering the question, but, um, but that's kind of the best advice I can give on that. And I know that wasn't what was being looked for on the question, but I hope that, hope that helps. Ramo Niminen. I have watched several episodes of your podcast, and I find it informative and thought-provoking. I would like your thoughts in regards to Soviet communism, specifically Stalinism in terms of destructive cults. As I've understood that system, it had the rigid doctrine, thought control, surveillance, infallible leader, etc., just as many destructive religious cults and Scientology you have talked about. I think Stalin was a true believer who tried to advance the cause of Soviet communism, but he was crippled by his issues and personality, as opposed to David Miscavige, who to me at least seems to be totally cynical about the cause, only in it for what he can get out of it. Now, this is an interesting question. Um, okay, God, a lot, a lot here. So first off, um, yes, I do think that um, communism as expressed in Soviet Russia, which was not a, you know, any kind of textbook definition of communism, but it is what people understood now to be communism because it's how it manifested itself most dramatically and tried to take over the world literally. So uh, it was a threat. It was a danger to a great many people. Uh, this was a country that uh, was and is armed with nuclear weapons, uh, and we were uh, close to mutual annihilation a couple times. Uh, so this was a big deal. And the, the whole survival of the entire world literally did rest on what this group, Soviet Russia, uh, was going to do and how America, of course, was going to respond. So, um, so I look at that culture and that government system and the way that that country was run during that time period very similarly to how I look at North Korea now. And I have made it very clear, in fact, I've done whole podcasts on why I think North Korea is the largest destructive cult in the world, or, or one of them, right? It's literally an entire country that is, you know, subsumed in this, this cult situation, this sort of cult of personality with Kim Jong-un and the Un family, uh, or Kim family, or however you want to call it. Um, you know, the guy is a total tyrant, uh, violates people's human rights, left, right, and center. Um, and he was raised in that situation. I mean, he's third gen leader, you know what I mean? So I'm kind of like, I, I don't have any question as to why he's that way. Uh, but I can still look at what he's doing and go, this is, you know, just because you understand why something is that way doesn't mean you have to agree with it or tolerate it. So, uh, okay, so I think the same thing uh, of Russia. And I think whether, you know, you mentioned Stalin was a true believer, really trying to make Russia a better place. Well, maybe that's true in the beginning. But uh, by the end, I don't think that's where that guy's head was at any more than I think L. Ron Hubbard's head was in a good place when he died. Yet at the beginning, he did have some ideas of helping other people. It was, you know, buried under a whole lot of narcissism and, and conning and financial uh, robbery, you know, but, um, but Hubbard did have, you know, sparks of wanting to help other people. Uh, maybe Stalin did too. I don't know. I haven't really studied up enough on the guy, but from what I do know, um, if he was a true believer at one point, I don't think he, he died that way. Um, and let's see here. In terms of uh, all the destructive cult characteristics, yeah, exactly like you said, they all line up. So uh, I think that answers your question, so I think I'm just going to leave it at that. Ben Asselstein. I understand the E-meter is a primitive lie detector, but I'm wondering what happens psychologically when a Scientologist lies on a meter and gets away with it. 
The idea of cheating and getting away with it seems to be replicated in other places. For example, when curious Scientologists read the OT levels before they're ready and don't get sick. How common is this sort of thing in Scientology? Do people get the feeling that they've passed a course when they shouldn't have or somehow fluked some sort of win? Does it help them feel special or better than other Scientologists? Is it a kind of wiggle room in the coercive cult that actually serves to make the cult more effective? Perhaps it helps them think that they're pulling one over on Scientology even as they pay more money to the church. Did you ever beat the e-meter, for example, lie and get away with it? Interesting question. Uh, it never even occurred to me that by beating a meter somebody's belief in Scientology would be reinforced. I don't, I, I don't really see that happening. I definitely uh, talked to people in Scientology who had confessed at one point or another to lying while on an e-meter. There are many, many questions about it in security checking. Uh, there's a ton of questions and ways to check as to whether a person has gotten away with something. Literally, they are asked in this sec check, have you gotten away with not telling me something, right? I mean, they'll ask them questions straight up like that to get that dial to move, that, that needle to move and, and, uh, and pull the, the withholds from them. So do Scientologists get away with not saying things? Absolutely they do. I sure as hell did many, many times. Uh, on the RPF, I learned that the e-meter is far from infallible. And I learned that, uh, in fact, it's all kind of very dependent on your state of mind, right? Because on the RPF, I learned how to semi-control what the needle was doing. And I don't mean all the time, and I don't mean consistently, but I was able to send my thoughts in certain places and get really, really happy, really amped up when I needed to in order to make that needle float so I could get on with the next sec check question so I could get done with this endless RPF program that took me over three years to get through answering hundreds of sec check questions until the needle floated on each one. Hundreds of them. That's why it took so goddamn long, amongst other things. There were other reasons too. So I learned how to do that. And I learned by ha learning how to do that, that the e-meter was not the lie detector flawless uh, machine of glittering model of efficiency that L. Ron Hubbard claimed it was. And he said that bad TRs, bad metering, bad auditing could make the meter not work or not seem to work, even though the meter always works, except here it doesn't, and here it doesn't, and here it doesn't. But other than those, it always works, right? So you're kind of like, whoa, those are some pretty big lanes that you just gave us here, Ron, like if the person's a criminal. Meters don't read on people who don't feel any responsibility or remorse for their actions. Okay, that's interesting. That's according to L. Ron Hubbard. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that that is actually, actually true. Uh, but that's a pretty wide lane because everybody on the RPF are Scientology criminals, right? We're all there for crimes we've committed as Scientologists, as Sea Org members. So if we're all criminals, then how does the meter, you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like, oh, well, no, not you guys. You're Scientologists. You're the good guys, even though you fucked up, right? 
uh, real criminals we're talking about, right? Uh, but then, of course, don't ask too many questions about this because, you know, when Mike Rinder or me or Leah or Aaron or any number of us critics who spent years on an e-meter with it working just fine while we were answering their questions, dong, dong, the needle's moving, uh, you know, we weren't criminals then, <laughs> right? But we're criminals now, we're SPs. So, you know, it's all whatever you want to make out of it is really the, the, the point here. And Hubbard gave enough exceptions to all of his rules that you always have wiggle room to come up with some ra rationale or reason why the meter wasn't working that time or on that person or in that place. Okay, so uh, that all being said, I... Um, definitely ran into other people who also faked things on an e-meter knowingly. Uh, for example, I, there was a woman on the RPF who learned to rub her bare feet, because sometimes in auditing you take your shoes and socks off to loosen your feet up. It affects the meter. Well, she learned that she could rub her feet gently on the carpeted floor and the needle would start looking like it was floating. And she got through a lot of sec check questions that way before somebody caught her. So, uh, you know, so yeah, people have definitely done that uh, many, many times in Scientology. Um, and not just to get out of sec check questions, but there was another guy who wanted to get kicked out of the Sea Org. So he made it look like he had a rock slam on the meter one time, which is this crazy banging back and forth, which is supposed to indicate an evil intention uh, on the subject under discussion. So he was, but what he was really doing was touching the cans together. Because when you close the circuit on the on the e-meter, then it the needle just bangs all over the place. So if you sit there and touch it randomly, it'll look like a rock slam. And the auditor will be like, whoa, right? And then when the auditor, you know, does his whole thing, it looks valid. So uh, so I saw a guy fake a rock slam, which he thought he was gonna get kicked out of the Sea Org. Instead they sent him to the RPF, and I think he left from there, but I don't I don't really remember. It doesn't matter. So, yes, so I have seen Sea Org members and Scientologists beat the meter, try to beat the meter, uh, and, you know, I don't really know what to say about it in terms of what that does to their faith in Scientology. I know what it did for me is it made me realize that this was not just very, very subliminal, very subconsciously to start with. It made me realize that everything Hubbard had said about the meter wasn't necessarily true and that this infallible device was fallible and could be beaten. And I didn't really care that much because I just wanted to get done the things I wanted to get done as a Sea Org member, right? That was my experience. And then when it came time for it to really count, when I got my, my leaving sec check, when I finally was leaving the Sea Org, I, I just whizzy-banged through that just like I did through some of the uh, RPF stuff. And this will sound, by the way, like I'm admitting right now that I faked my entire RPF program. I faked all my auditing in Scientology. That is not at all what I am saying. This was at the very end of the auditing that I received in Scientology. I had over 50, 60 PC folders of auditing, all of it a very hardcore true believer I believed in the meter's infallibility. I answered the questions as honestly as I could. I wasn't trying to beat the meter. It wasn't until late, late, late in the game 
you know, at the end of the RPF that all of this started dawning on me and I started, uh, you know, changing my thinking about all of this accordingly. So, um, so I know that OSA watches this stuff, always looking for something I'm sure that they can get on me, but I am in no way, shape, or form admitting that I was a fake Scientologist or that I was faking it in my auditing sessions because I wasn't. So there you go. John Jones, after watching your recent excellent video about mind control, I have to ask, how did you become a Rush Limbaugh ditto head and what finally cured you of this condition? Uh, this is funny. Um, okay, when I was in Santa Barbara, uh, I grew up in the 80s under Reagan, and my understanding as a high school student of politics was very limited. I remember thinking of Reagan as an ins inspirational speaker for me as a high school student. Some of his speeches and stuff were shown to us in school, and and uh, we just kind of got the idea, I got the idea that he was, that he, uh, you know, was, 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 he could be inspiring, you know. Um, and then he liked jelly beans and then he fell asleep in meetings. And I thought that was a little bit off. <laughs> and the whole Iran-Contra thing and, and you know, uh, I'm sure there's a laundry list of reasons why Reagan should be hated. And uh, he's not, you know, right now in my, in my uh, good books. Uh, but that's, I'm telling you, at the time, this was kind of my idea of conservatives. conservatives. Um, so in Scientology, listening to L. Ron Hubbard talk about politics from the 1950s and 60s and back, you know, in history, that was how I sort of learned about politics at all, had any kind of political awareness, which was really very minimal. It was very, not, it was very much not being very aware of anything. And I was young and I was cocky and I thought I knew way more than I did. Uh, surprise, you know, I was your standard teen young uh, man. And I had a friend who was older, I think he was in his uh, late 30s at the time, who was a Scientologist. He and I became good friends. We hung out together all the time. And he was very conservative uh, politically also. And, um, and so he and I would talk and I would learn from him. I so sort of mentored under him or whatever. And then uh, Rush Limbaugh at this time that I'm talking about, and I believe this was either late 80s or early 90s, it was while I was staff in Santa Barbara, got on TV. And he also kind of mushroomed in popularity. Mainstream media started picking up Rush Limbaugh as a major player and a political talker. And he wrote uh, a book called The Way Things Ought to Be, and he was very cocky and he was very arrogant, which appealed to my young cockiness and arrogance. Uh, again, that emotional appeal that I mentioned in a couple questions ago as to what drives decision-making. Well, here was, you know, somebody that I thought was funny. I thought his humor was funny, you know. I thought that um, the things he made fun of, I, I laughed at that stuff. Um, and I thought it, I, I was impressed, um, by his self-assuredness, in fact, his egotism, uh, it impressed me. And so I thought, now this is somebody who knows what they want in life, who is certain about how things ought to be. And, um, and so I thought, well, here's somebody for me to follow or look at, right, on a political basis, not like... He didn't have the same status for me as L. Ron Hubbard did, not even remotely close. But he was somebody that I, he was an entertainer that I enjoyed listening to for his political commentary. Okay, so 
Then I, um, Rush's popularity started to wane. I, as a staff member, didn't really have a lot of time to continue watching or listening to his show. And I uh, then joined the Sea Org in 1995, at which point I lost all touch with everything political, period. I was not keeping up with anything, hardly anything, unless it was newspaper headline material that I could see as I was walking past the newspaper stands that were you know, outside PAC, uh, the, the Pacifica base, the, the big blue buildings in Los Angeles. Unless I saw the headlines, I was unaware of the news. Uh, almost uh, on an almost daily, you know, weekly, monthly basis. I just didn't care. I was way too focused on Scientology and my Sea Org jobs. So, um, so then I just kind of lost all contact with all that. So then I come out of the Sea Org in 2012, and I've got a whole different mindset now from having done the uh, this years of you know internment in a cult, the RPF suddenly reevaluating all of my decisions and, and everything after I go down the rabbit hole of Scientology information on the internet. And so after that, I was questioning everything. And I had long since forgotten mostly about Rush Limbaugh or anything he stood for. So then I'm learning about, you know, LGBT, all that stuff, changing my mind about psychiatry, changing my mind about all kinds of stuff. And uh, and, then the and then politics comes across my plate, and I start looking into it and, and thinking about it, and I've already got this very liberal mindset developing uh, in regards to social issues, not necessarily economics, but socially. And I listened to some Rush Limbaugh. Went, oh, yeah, Rush Limbaugh, he's still around. And I just, it was like, what? <laughs> like I, just got, I just could not believe I was, you know, that, that I'd ever followed this man. He is the most ridiculous fool. I, he's just, it's just ridiculous, uh, with some of the stuff that he says. So, um, and I'm not insulting his intelligence. He's not a dumb person. But I do not, I am no longer on the same page on any topic with Rush Limbaugh. Uh, that at least not any topic I've, I've listened to or heard him say. And every time I've ever seen or heard anything from him uh, since I left Scientology, it has been the most ridiculous, windbaggy nonsense. And uh, I think the guy is just, you know, uh, on his last legs and trying to stay relevant. And, uh, and I don't really care anything about him at this point. Thank you for asking. <laughs>It is time for Flash Answers. Andrew McAuliffe. Why doesn't Miscavige just go exterior and psychically slash astrally connect with LRH, wherever he is supposed to be now in his current form, and find out from him what the final OT levels are? Is it because further OT levels, fake or truly from LRH, would go against Miscavige's aims for the Church of Scientology? <laughs> No, Andrew, he's not doing that because he can't, because that's not a thing. You don't astrally exteriorize to go see LRH. Uh, also, he has to live by what was said at the L. Ron Hubbard death event back in 86, where they said Hubbard was going off to further researches, and he was leaving us on our own to fend for ourselves now. He was out of the picture. It was made very clear during that event that L. Ron Hubbard was not coming back you know, tomorrow, that we weren't looking for his reincarnated body, anything like that. None of that was hinted at or talked about at all. 
And in fact, in the first version of OT8 is the uh, Lucifer HCO bulletin, where Hubbard talks about how if he comes back, he'll probably come back as a politician. So, uh, so two different places where Miscavige is not going to go back and contradict what he said before because it's, it's right there on tape. Um, and that's kind of how he's been running the show, right? He's not running it um, for LRH. He's running it for him. <laughs> uh, he's just using L. Ron Hubbard's name. So that's, uh, that's, my, that's my quick answer to that. Susan Hepler was wondering, out of the mass exodus of Sea Org hierarchy and fallout from the Truth Rundown, who was the one person to leave the church that was a surprise to you? Thanks and keep up the good work. When I was in the Sea Org, the biggest surprise to me of people coming out was Mike Rinder, uh, because I had actually met and interacted with him. Marty I knew about, and Marty I had met and interacted with, but I didn't like Marty as much. <laughs> Marty was always kind of a dick. Uh, and, you know, that's just kind of how his personality was. He just rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Mike did not. And I, um, and I wasn't, you know, pal, pal, buddy, buddy, never had a social chat with him in, of any kind when I was in the Sea Org. But I just, from his position as the head of OSA and the international PR spokesman and all that, uh, that was the biggest surprise for me. Leo P. If David Miscavige were to leave Scientology today, how many ex-members would go back? I don't know, maybe some of the indies. Uh, so, I don't know, a hundred? <laughs> maybe. Uh, I think most people who are out of Scientology are very, very thankful to never even contemplate looking back. Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me maunder on here. I uh, really do appreciate your questions, and please leave any that you have for me in the comment section here on YouTube in my critical Q&A videos. That is where I look for them. Uh, and if you like this show, like what I'm doing, and want to support it, then sign up on Patreon. Uh, there are also one-offs you can do through PayPal or something. Links all below in the description section. But, um, but the best thing is to join us on Patreon. Thanks a lot, guys. I will see you next week. Bye-bye.